if I'm going to be honest, when I was looking at the passages for the Sunday, I was a little confused. Uh, first, because I didn't immediately see how they all tied together. Oftentimes, there's a theme that connects them, especially in seasons like Lent. And I accepted, okay, I don't know what the theme is. I'm just going to go with the prodigal son. That's an oldie and a goodie. But as I thought about that, I was kind of puzzled too, because I thought, man, we're in the fourth Sunday of Lent. Lent is a season of self-examination, of repentance. It has a reputation of being dour. But this is the stuff of celebration, not of sackcloth. So why is this, the one time it's preached once every three years, why did they decide to put it in Lent? And I think we get a better sense of how to answer that question when we look at it in context. When we look at where it was positioned at the beginning of this chapter, if you open up to chapter 15, you'll see that the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So just as a review, the Pharisees and the scribes were experts in the law. People respected them for the, the authority for how uh, much they could interpret the Jewish law well. And despite the depiction that we see of them in the New Testament, they were thought of quite well in Jesus' time. And the Pharisees especially looked at history, looked at Jewish law, and thought the reason why the nation of Israel is so down and out it's because we haven't been following the law of God. So we need everyone, not just the priests, but everyone to follow the letter of the law to a T so that we could be restored to glory. So they grumble here because when they see Jesus welcoming sinners, they think this man is opposing the work of God. How is God going to restore our people if he's indulging these people who we know what kind of lives they've led and so they're grumbling. And Jesus sees this, and so he tells them a parable. Now, a, a parable, it's a Greek word that literally means thrown alongside. In parables, Jesus takes concrete examples from everyday life to help us see abstract truths, to help us see truths about life that can't be grasped if you just state them in an abstract way. But if we take parables for what they're worth, it's not just about understanding something or hearing a good story. One scholar named R.T. France puts it this way, to understand a parable is usually to be charged or is usually to be changed or at least challenged to change, not just to be enlightened. So that's our invitation for us today is to enter in to this parable and see how it might challenge us. Because these Pharisees were thinking Jesus is opposing the work of God, but it turns out they, in fact, were opposing the work of Jesus. And so as we look at this, we can ask ourselves, how are we in our hearts might be ones who also, with the Pharisees, are opposing the work of Jesus? And you may be thinking, look, I am no Pharisee. I don't need to hear this. And to that I'd say three things. The first is the Pharisees probably didn't think they needed to hear it either. But Jesus still said the parable. The second is that, as I said, part of our hearts 
might resist the work of God as well. So we probably need to hear this parable in some way too. And lastly, the beauty of Jesus' parables is, as one person puts it, they're like a Disney movie. Or if you see a good Disney or Pixar movie, they have jokes in there that all the kids get and laugh at and the parents might roll their eyes at, but they also have jokes that you don't realize were jokes until you go back and watch it when you're older, that the parents laugh at it that the kids don't get. And in the same way in this parable, we have things that are good not only for the Pharisees, but also for the sinners and tax collectors among us to see how we can tune our hearts better to the work of Jesus. So let's enter into the story looking at each character as they come up. So we'll start with the younger son. Uh, We see here that in context, immediately the stakes have been raised at the start of this parable. Jesus begins with two other parables that we're not going to focus on today. And in them, it starts with one out of a hundred is lost, then one out of ten is lost, and now we have only two. And more than that, it moves from property, a sheep or a coin, to people. So the stakes are immediately raised once we get to the start of this parable. And those stakes are immediately dashed as we first see the rejection of the younger son of his father. We read in verse 12, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me, is what he says to his father. And I couldn't help but notice that none of y'all gasped. Because I think that's probably what would have happened when Jesus first said this. In our times, it's not unheard of, maybe, for a family, if they have means, to like uh, give one of their kids an advance on their inheritance to perhaps buy property or start a business. Like That's not unheard of in our time. But this here would have been unthinkable. It would have been unimaginable in the time of Jesus. What essentially this younger son is saying is, Dad... I wish you were dead. All you are good for to me is your goods. There's no need to wait for you to die. You are already dead to me right now, so let's get get it over with and just give me what I'm due. And can you imagine that after having changed diapers, after having spent sleepless nights being worried or praying for your child, after enduring the ups and downs of adolescence, that your kid comes and tells you this? And yet this is what the younger son tells his father. And just in case we didn't get it there, it's reinforced when he says that the younger son goes away to a far country. Because back in this time, we didn't have FaceTime. We didn't have cell phones. If he couldn't check his dad's Instagram to keep in touch with him. Perhaps his dad's Facebook, since he was his dad, it probably would have been on Facebook and not on Instagram. But there would have been no way to keep in touch. By leaving, he was essentially severing the relationship, saying, I want you out of my life, and you're going to have no way to contact me whatsoever. So what he first said with his mouth, in terms of essentially, I want you to be dead, he confirmed with his actions, and he takes his share of the inheritance, which would not have been easy to convert into something that he could take with them. In a matter of a few days, he leaves. That's how desperate he is to get away from his father. And in some way, this is what is going on with each one of us 
when we sin. Some people have talked about the heart of sin is either taking a good thing and making it an ultimate thing, or failing to give gratitude to God for what he's due. And so in our own ways, we might say, okay, God, you made me, you've sustained me, you've given me all this stuff, cool, 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 but it would be cooler if you weren't here. It would be cooler if I got to do what I wanted to and didn't have to worry about you messing around in my life or making me feel guilty. I want to do what I want. Thanks for all this stuff. I'm gone. That's what happens in our hearts when we choose to turn away from God in ways big and small. And we see that here in the prodigal. We see the heart behind sin. But we also see him start to return. But before he returns to his father, he sees the fruit of his sin. So it says that he squandered all of his wealth. That all of the good that he tried to have apart from God came to nothing. And perhaps you've experienced this yourself. Perhaps you've like been caught on the treadmill of trying, of like always trying to do one thing. If I have this, it, it, my life will be good. If I have that, my life will be good. You get it and you realize there's still something missing. You, you're trying to complete your life. You're trying to have meaning and purpose apart from God, and there's always something more left. Or perhaps you've like lived a good life, and you're just uh, at the, towards the end of your life, and you're facing the futility of death, perhaps for the first time, and you're realizing, man, all this stuff I worked for, what's it going to come to? Is it going to be squandered? When we try to seek good apart from God, it often comes to naught. And so he finds himself in need, which we see illustrated the fact that he's working with pigs. This also would have been probably another gasp part of the, the, the parable, that pigs were seen as reprehensible to Jewish people, that they were forbidden by Jewish food law. And at one point, about 200 years before the time of Jesus, there was a Greek king who, in effort to subjugate the Jewish people, forced them to eat pork. And that made this disdain for pigs, it deepened it. And so that this presumably Jewish young man would be working with pigs means he's at the bottom of the bottom. But that is when he starts to feel his need. Because oftentimes it's not until we've bottomed out, it's not until that we're in need that we see our real need. It's not until life is going wrong, until we realized the things that we might have been doing wrong. And so it, in uh, verse 17, he says, he came to himself. Which I think is a powerful, there's powerful theology in that, where he thought he wanted to find life apart from his father. He thought, if I could just have his stuff and be apart from him, I'd have it. It would be great. But here we see that in seeking to find himself, he lost himself. Sin not only separates us from God, it separates us from our very selves. Sin dehumanizes us in all of its forms. And so here, 
he sees what has happened and he says, man, I'm going to go back to my father. But did you notice how he talked about it? So he said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. This is the speech that he started to rehearse. He thought, man, I really blew it. How can I get back into my dad's good graces? I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back and I'm going to work my way back up. And so he starts on the long journey home, probably days or weeks, probably rehearsing this every day as he goes. And that's when we see the second character introduced. We, we see the father. So the, his younger son has utterly rejected him, has taken his money and broken his heart. And now the son has nothing to show for it. And he's hoping to beg his way back. How is the father going to respond? Even before we can see it, but the text says, but when he was a long way off. And I don't know about you, but I cannot think about those words. I'm about to get emotional right now without being pumped. That the father, even though, um, even though that to him, that even though that the father was dead to his son for many years, the father never gave up hope on his son. The father always kept his hope alive going out to work each day, scanning the horizon, hoping one day his son would return. And in fact, probably he had friends who were saying, dude, just give up already. He's not going to come back. But he said no. And one day he sees his son there. And how does he respond? He says he felt compassion on him. And this is one of the parts where it's like, this is the wonder of Scripture, where like, this is not a proof that it's God-breathed, but I think it, it gives credence to that suggestion that scholars who have a lot more time and are a lot smarter than I have have essentially counted out the number of words in Greek in this parable. And the middle word in this parable is, the father had compassion the verb for have compassion is the middle word of this parable. That's literally at the heart of this parable. He has compassion on his son. And so great is his compassion for his son that he runs out. Now this also would have been a surprising thing for us. We know even in like a Western non-hierarchical kind of culture that if two people are meeting and one is like way more important, what happens? Like you go to the important person. There's probably an attendant who comes out and says, the queen is ready to see you now. And then you go into her quarters and have tea. But here we have the opposite. We have the more important person. We have the wealthy landowner. We have the nobleman who's making a fool of himself by running out to go and see his son. The father takes shame upon himself to cover up the shame that his son was feeling. And you can imagine how deep that shame is out as he sees his father's face and starts to prepare the speech that he's been rehearsing for so long. And he, he looks at him and says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
And if you look at it, there was more to his speech there. He only got through half of it before the father cut him off. Because while he heard what he was saying, the father didn't want to hear it. The father would only accept him back as his son. And this is interesting. So there's a parable like this in Buddhist thought that actually predates Jesus by a good time. And it's the the similar contours of a, a son who leaves his father and comes back. But when he comes back, do you know what happens? This is what happens. He earns his way back into the father's good graces until at long last, after years and years of labor, he eventually earns his way back in. But Jesus won't have it that way. The only way you're coming back is if you come back as a child, as a full member of the family. Nothing that you do yourself. So he takes on the shame of his son himself and he covers his son with honor. He says, go, get the cloak, get the best robe, get the ring. This could have been like a family ring, a signet ring that had the seal of the family, the mark that you indeed are my son. Just as the son effectively cut off his relationship with his father by his actions, the father effectively restores his relationship with his son by his actions. And they celebrate. And you can imagine that younger son being like a newlywed who shortly after they're married is playing with their ring all the time because it's new on their finger and it's just too good to believe, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is real. And the son is just playing with that ring thinking, man, I, I can't believe I'm back. And if this were a fairy tale, the story would end right here. But it's not. It's a parable. And it's supposed to challenge us, and so it doesn't. And if we end here, we're going to miss part of the heart of the challenge of this parable. You see, we're only two-thirds of the way through it. And there were two parables that preceded this one as well. Do you remember what happened in those parables? The first one, that there was a sheep that was lost in the country. The second one was a coin that was lost at home. And so we go on to the older brother. We find him in the field, which is exactly where we found the younger brother when he found himself. And he hears the music. He tells his servant to go, find out what's happening. And how does he respond once he receives word of this great, joyous news? With compassion? No. He responds with anger. Surely he's not his father's son. If he's going to be responding that way. And we see it in his words. We see that he's not his father's son in, in his words. If you follow in verse 27. Oh, nope, wait. If you follow it in verse uh, 29, he says, Look, these many years have I served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. 
do you notice what he didn't say? When his younger brother told his father, I wish you were dead, he at least had the decency to call him father. The elder brother never makes any mention of a fatherly kind of relationship. Not only that, he refuses to acknowledge that his brother is in fact his brother. With his words, he's revealing that he's not part of the family in his heart. He has disdain for his brother and disdain for his father. And the irony here is that both he and his younger brother were suffering from the same sickness, but they just had a different presentation. So the prodigal son, the younger brother, cared about property more than his father and wished his father dead. The older brother cared about property more than his brother and wished his brother would remain dead. That's part of the reason why he's angry. If you think about it, the estate had already been divided up. As the older brother, he would have had a two-third share. The younger brother would have had a one-third share. Everything that's left is his. So when he sees this party that the father is throwing, he doesn't see a celebration for his son coming back. He sees money that's going out of his bank account. He sees this is coming at the cost of me. How dare you? So in that way, he's kind of like his brother. And not only that, the prodigal son took what the father gave him and wasted it on reckless living. But the older brother, despite having what the father has this whole time, wishes that he could live recklessly. Did, did, did you catch that detail that he gave? He said, this son of yours wasted your money on prostitutes. How much information has the older brother received at this point? He's received the preliminary report, just the basics that your son is back, that yet your brother is back. No details have been given about what happened. But he knows what he would have been doing. He knows what he would have been doing if he could finally get out from under his father. He knows what he wanted to do. He was just being decent about it. I know that that can be true of me sometimes. I'm sure that can be true of y'all as well. That there are some things that in your heart you wish you want to do, but like you know that it's not proper. That's what he was doing there. And not only that, we also see that just as much as the prodigal son wished his father dead, so did the older brother. He says, you've never even given me a goat. Now let's think about this, y'all. We've seen the party that the father has given at the son that has returned. You're telling me he never throws any other kinds of parties? You're telling me that the older brother had never been at a family feast with the neighborhood that he's gotten to enjoy? I call bogus. So why does he want a young goat? He wants to celebrate with his friends, not with his father. He wants to take what's the father's and go away and enjoy it apart from the father. That's why he says, 
you haven't given me what I want because he wants to be apart from his father. And so in reality, he is suffering from the same sickness as his brother, but he just can't admit it, doesn't see it, and thinks he's better than his brother. Uh, One scholar named Peter Williams puts it like this. The prodigal asks to be treated as a servant when he is a son. The older brother thinks he's being the older brother thinks he's being treated as a slave when he is a son. That's part of the difference between these two. The older brother from the comfort of home has strayed into a farther off country than the prodigal had ever reached. But we still see the father again. He comes out. It's the same malady. He offers the same cure. He runs out and takes shame upon himself to cover the shame of the prodigal. He leaves the party that he was hosting. It's like, could you imagine showing up to a party where the host had just left? The host being the only person that ties everyone together and, and they're just gone? That would be embarrassing. But he was like, it's more important for me to go back and find my son than it is for me to maintain the social conventions here. I'm fine with having them think terribly of me. I want to restore my son. So just like he did with the younger son, he's taking shame upon himself to cover the shame of his other son. And he calls him child, which is so, and the, and the English is translated son, but all the other words in this parable that are translated son are a different word. It's huios instead of technon. Technon is the word for like child. He's saying my child. It's a word of tender. It's a word of, of tenderness. It's a word of love. And he says, uh, he says, son, my child, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to, to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is now alive. He was lost and is now found. And here's another point where if we pay attention to the context of the first two parables, we'll see something. Because this ends on a minor chord. The first two parables that Jesus say have a tidy ending. He even gives them a summation of it, a moral of the story where it's most of the same in both ones, so I'll just read it once. But he says, Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Repeats that again in the second parable. Nothing here. Why? It's because Jesus is doing exactly what the Father did. The sons of the Father either said, I want you to be dead, like I I want you destroyed, I want you out of my life, or they wished it. And what did the father do? He, He let them say that and then restored them or sought to restore them. And that's what Jesus is doing here with the Pharisees. They're opposing him. And Jesus does not do what's common in our culture today where those who disagree with you you destroy, you demean, you, you tear down. He invites them in. And that's what he does to us when we 
like the Pharisees, seek to oppose God in some way. When we, in our heart of hearts, wish God to be dead. Or when we, in our heart of hearts, when we've come to ourselves, try to come back on our own terms. And try to say, here's what I'm going to do to earn my way back. Because I'm not going to take your charity. That's opposing God's ways just as much as it is in the beginning. He'll only have us if we will receive his grace. And in the same way, if we oppose God by seeing what he's done for us and denying that to other people. Do do, do you feel the challenge of this parable? Do you see yourself in either of the sons? If so, then look to the Father. Look to Jesus who took shame upon himself. He shared in our humanity. He hung upon a cross. In the Seneca, a, a Roman philosopher said that crucifixion is not even a word that should be said in the same sentence as a noble person. That's how despised it was. Yet Jesus suffered on the cross, endured shame our shame, covering our shame, that we might be clothed in honor, that we might wear Christ, that we might, in the words of Paul, put on Christ and be part of the family just as Jesus is part of the family. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you um, that when you see us opposing you, Lord, that you do not just destroy us, Lord, but you graciously invite us in. Speak to our hearts by your Holy Spirit and and by your word and show us the ways in which we are opposing you. Lord, that we might see our need and come to ourselves and run to you and receive your free welcome. And God, give us this grace to extend to others as well. Jesus, we ask this in your name. Amen.